I was playing a soccer game and took took a pretty hard um, ball sort of to the side of my head um, and remember feeling kind of immediately pretty dizzy, a little bit off. And I know I know people recognize that I'd gotten hit. Like I know my dad on the sideline, can they give me the, the thumbs up, thumbs down? And I gave him the thumbs up and um, kind of similar with, with at least one of my teammates. But I think in that case, I just wasn't in a place where I could really recognize that in myself, just because I you know, had just had a concussion. Welcome to Finding Strength, the Spalding Rehabilitation Podcast, where we'll try to connect the dots between rehabilitation research and the people who are most impacted. This production is a collaboration between the Model Systems and the Rehabilitation Outcomes Center at Spalding. I'm your host, Shanali Gaudino, and today we're talking about school-age concussions and education programs. The voice you heard at the top of the episode was Esther Lovett. Esther is an advocate for post-concussion syndrome after having managed the effects of multiple concussions in grade school. She has an impressive track record of speaking out through her own blog, website, and in partnership with the Concussion Legacy Foundation. You can even watch her TED Talk. We're also joined today by Dr. Daniel Danishvar, who has been doing concussion research for over a decade. In the episode resource links, you'll find a couple of his articles evaluating the effectiveness of concussion education programs. Dr. Danishvar is chief of the Division of Brain Injury at Spalding. He's assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, director of the TJADES Institute for Brain Research and Innovation, and is the director of training at our own Rehabilitation Outcomes Center at Spalding. So given that this episode is releasing in September and school is starting back up, let's jump back into Esther's story. As a youth athlete, I played soccer and hockey um, and ended up having two serious concussions that really sent me on a long path of, of getting better and having post-concussion syndrome for years. Um, so I had a few bad concussions, stopped playing sports, um, but at this point graduated from Georgetown um, in 2022, and now I'm working full-time, um, moved back to Boston, and you know still have some lingering sy- symptoms, but you know I'm so much improved. Um, and so hope that that other people know that that things get better and um, sometimes it just takes time. I think knowing what we know now, hopefully those teammates or even my dad probably would have handled it differently of, um, you know, sort of insisting that that I come out and, and get checked out. Yeah. So one of the uh, the things that we, we realize now is with concussions, getting proper rest and recovery is, is critically important. We know that uh, one of the things that can most prolong your symptoms of a concussion is a subsequent head injury. And we also know that a, uh, a second head impact uh, of lesser magnitude than what would normally give you a concussion could give you a concussion. And so uh, that's why it's so important to make sure that you, you get rest and recovery. And one of the things that we also tell the, the athletes is uh, if you have a concussion, you're not only at higher risk of getting a second concussion, you're also at higher risk of getting an ACL tear or you know hurting another part of your body. And that makes sense because if your reaction time's off, if your proprioception or your ability to know where you are in space, if that's off, 
if uh, if you're not able to uh, think the same way as quickly as you normally can, uh, you're going to be at risk of hurting yourself. I just couldn't really recognize it in myself at the moment, even though I felt like I had had decent education about concussions and you know, typically would have been able to recognize the signs and symptoms just sort of in that moment. I was so out of it. I, I, di- I didn't take myself out. You said you had had some kind of education before that? Yeah, I remember at my school we did impact testing and sort of the, the educational piece that comes along with that. And then I also played on a club soccer team where I think, I mean, I think the coaching staff did a pretty good job, frankly, talking about concussion and, and making us feel like we should self-report or we should speak up if, if teammates of ours had concussions or, or, you know, we noticed something on the field. But I think all of the education that I had had, concussions were a very short-term injury. And I had had a concussion myself before that one in, in 2013 where I missed one game and I felt fine after, you know, maybe a couple of days and was sort of held out as a, as a precaution. And that's exactly what I had seen teammates go through as well. Sort of the, you miss a week and then everything's fine. I guess where some of the education failed me a little bit was more as I sort of got further down the bell curve and had post-concussion syndrome. And I'd never, I'd never heard those words before being diagnosed with it. And that was never a component of any of the concussion training. And it seems like there's there's a place for both. Obviously, you want people to understand the short-term effects and how to recognize symptoms in a teammate and you know help them get off the field in the short term, but also understanding that sometimes you don't recover in a few days or a week, and, and some people have this long tail of recovery and that other people experience that as well. Talk more about impact testing, either one of you, because I don't know anything about impact testing. I remember doing it in the computer lab at school um, and sort of running through a series of memory tests, you know, shapes and colors, pattern recognition, things like that. And then I remember taking it after having a concussion and it being so hard and them immediately telling me to go see a doctor after seeing my results on it. Um, and, you know, remember taking it a few times after that. But yeah, at least for me, that was a that was a quick red flag. Yeah, the idea is that it can be so hard to know whether someone has a concussion because you know, unlike you know an injury to the rest of your body, you don't know for sure uh, that there's no X-ray or even advanced imaging, no MRI that tells you whether or not someone's concussed. And we're all so different. So some people might have better memory than others, just starting off the bat. So what impact testing does is it, it allows every athlete to get a baseline test uh, so you can figure out how someone's functioning before a potential injury. And then if you're concerned that they have one, you test them and see uh, whether or not uh, they might have a concussion. The problem with impact testing, though, is some athletes uh, will intentionally, you know, what's called sandbag their their baseline test uh, so that uh, it'll be harder to determine whether they had a concussion in the future. Um, and so, and we, we know that that happens, and that's why this isn't you know a black and white way of assessing concussions. It's just another tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about um, knowing what concussions were, and even knowing that you're supposed to speak up for your teammates, like th- those are two critically important things. Have you ever heard of impact testing? I hadn't. 
I wondered if it was mandated across all school sports across the country. The impact test thing is not mandated, um, but, uh, but the majority of high schools and almost all colleges do some form of neuropsychiatric testing at baseline so that they can then follow it up, whether that be impact or something else. Now, when you're talking about concussion education, uh, every state has a requirement. Uh, so the first state to pass a, uh, a law mandating uh, concussion education was the state of Washington. Uh, and it was following uh, a, uh, a catastrophic injury that occurred to a, a high school uh, student uh, by the name of Zach Leistad. And so um, the the first law then was the Leistad Law in, uh, in Washington, which is, I think, in 2007. Um, and then uh, basically every state has since followed suit with a similar law. But there isn't a lot of... Uh, standardization of what counts as concussion education. So for some teams, that's just putting a flyer up on the wall. Uh, for other teams, they're much more robust in their concussion education. And and then on top of that, so there's not only no standardization in what uh, counts as concussion education for the most part, but there's also no real enforcement mechanism for making sure that this takes place. There's no one monitoring um, in most states, and uh, and then there's no one penalizing for the the teams that don't do it properly. Um, and so that really sets up a system where you know it's the wild west. I graduated high school in 2003, so thinking back to sort of like what. I don't think we. Ha- I mean, I was a swimmer, so it wasn't really a contact sport, so we didn't have to. I didn't have to go through that. But I. I don't think we had really much of this in New Jersey in two thousand in the early two thousands. Our knowledge of concussions has changed so much, right? You know, when I started doing this work fifteen years ago, uh, what we thought of as concussions, uh, that they're different than what they are now. Uh, we now know that a lot of the you know things that we would previously call dings or bell ringers, those are concussions, and so. Part of the, the task with concussion education programs over the last 15 years has been trying to bridge that knowledge gap that, you know, it's not just a knowledge gap from providers uh, to, uh, from scientists to providers, it's a knowledge gap from, you know, the scientists to patients to families. Um, and in part, part of the issue with concussion education is that it's not just educating people about what a concussion is, which is critically important, but it's also about imparting a uh, attitude change, a behavior change, a belief change, because uh, you might know what a concussion is, but if you don't think it's serious enough to report, or if you don't feel uh, that your uh, coaches and your teammates would respect you for reporting them, then you're not going to report them. And that is something that you know every educational program needs to really take into account. And so uh, part of what we, we learn from when implementing new education programs is building on the robust literature that frankly comes from a lot of the stuff that didn't work, like the, the, the D.A.R.E. program of the 80s and 90s. Uh, there's a robust literature around that intervention change and what worked for it and what didn't, largely what didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when we you know, created new concussion education programs and then looked to validate them, we based it really on that, that scientific literature. What kinds of things did not work about the D.A.R.E. program? Because now I think back and 
I think people used to joke about the D.A.R.E. program like when I was in school. Like you were not the cool kid if you like really believed in the D.A.R.E. program. And and that's what we, we learned so that there is a uh, it's called the theory of behavior of uh, planned behavior, theory of planned behavior uh, that uh, was first proposed in the early 90s. Uh, but it basically says that you need uh, changes to certain constructs uh, to actually change someone's behavior. And one of those is uh, the uh, perceived norms, what the other people in your situation would do. That influences what you would do. So with the D.A.R.E. program, it was just largely about imparting information. But if uh, if you don't think... If you think that your 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 friends would think it's dorky to not do drugs, then you're gonna feel it's dorky to not do drugs. Uh, similarly, if you think that your teammates would not report their concussion, then you're less likely to report your concussion. Uh, if you think that your your coaches would look down on you for reporting concussion, then you similarly. Uh, you know, will look down on yourself for potentially recording a concussion. And so that's where the perceived norms are. It's one of the, the key constructs in imparting behavioral change. Mm-hmm. One of the other constructs of the theory of planned behavior is uh, to have a, what's called a perceived behavioral control. The idea that you know what to do in the case of wanting to make that behavior change. What I mean is, uh, in the example of concussions, if you uh, know how you would go through the mechanism of reporting you for yourself or for your friend, you're more likely to actually do it when when it comes down to, to brass tacks. So it's a lot harder uh, to navigate that space if you're a person who has a brain injury, which is what a concussion is, mm-hmm. um, and to figure it out for the first time if you haven't already mentally gone through what it would be like to uh, to report. So if we want to improve prevention and early treatment of concussion in schools, it's not enough just to deliver facts and figures. We have to acknowledge and address the very human aspects of our behavior. As Dan says, perceived norms and perceived behavioral control shift the cultural attitudes and make a concussion action plan. Question is, how are school concussion education programs integrating these lessons so far? I asked Dan to describe a couple of programs that exist today. Yeah, so the the most uh, commonly used one is a video-based concussion education program uh, that's actually both written and video-based concussion education program. And so they'll sometimes, uh, some schools will just use the written materials. Uh, Most schools will require the learners to watch just like a 14-minute video or something along those lines. The second most commonly used concussion education program is something actually I helped to develop, but it also has a VR option, which is called Crash Course. You are put in the uh, situation of, a, of someone who experiences a concussion, and then uh, you basically have to decide, am I going to report this concussion or not? And then you're led down the path, like a choose-your-own-adventure type thing, down the path of what, what happens based on your choice. That aspect is one of the things that we wanted to study from a research uh, perspective. We wanted to see to what extent having ownership over that decision Im- impacts your uh, your beliefs and attitudes and the other constructs related to, to behavior change around concussion reporting. Yeah, from someone who has a background in education, this idea that like any training, let alone an hour or less, can impact a cultural shift is like 
a serious challenge, but that game gamification idea, right, is more engaging. So what? So any more on the research on sort of what that has shown? Yeah, that was one of the things we also found when we studied it is that something about having multiple different education programs in series substantially improves metrics related to concussion reporting. Uh, so to your point, it might not be enough for just a one-time point education to really change views related to concussion, that you might need regular or at least repeated concussion education interventions to really impact changing behavior. There's also uh, ways to kind of build the community surrounding concussion uh, awareness and education. Uh, so for example, there's uh, another program called the Concussion Story Wall, a online collection of people's stories uh, related to concussion. Most of them had persistent post-concussion symptoms and and so they uh, they had prolonged recovery. So one of the, the problems with getting diagnosed with a concussion is that it's an isolating experience. Um, you, you feel uh, like nobody else is going through that or nobody else has gone through that. Uh, and that's for, for the most part, it's again, because it's an invisible injury. And so what tools like the story wall can provide in terms of education uh, is uh, access to other people who have experienced similar problems and and the knowledge that they recover uh, because that can also be very scary for people when they're taking a longer time to recover than their, their peers might have yeah <laughs> similar for what you were yeah what you went through right that isolating experience and yeah. did you know about was it did it exist when you were going through this the, con- the story not wall? that i knew of yeah. no it was launched in uh in 2019 i mean for me i even got to a point where the, doc- the concussion doctor I was seeing told me that he'd never had a patient who had symptoms for as long as I had. And so that's, that's sort of a scary territory to enter when it's like, not only do I not know anybody who've, who's had symptoms for this long, but my doctor, who's an expert in his field, hasn't had a patient who's experienced symptoms for this long. And so that's, that's certainly very isolating. Talk a little bit about maybe team up against concussions. Is that something that is like ancient history for you now? I don't know how long ago that was. Ancient history, yeah. It is, okay. Uh, <laughs> you so, don't have to. No, yeah, and so, so Team Up Against Concussions was the um, the first scientifically validated concussion education program. It's the, the, the way that I actually originally met Esther. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah, 10 years ago, eight years ago? Something, years like, something that, like that, yeah. And, um, and so this was a, a program that was launched in 2009. And uh, its model was basically to... Uh, help impart concussion education information by directly talking to kids with, you know, near peers, so you know, f- maybe five years older or so, and it it uh, ended up proving to be successful in terms of changing knowledge and attitudes about concussion. But the problem is that it doesn't really scale very well, and so we educated you know almost forty thousand kids. Uh, but uh, that's a drop in the bucket when you're talking about, you know, three million football players in this country every year. There um, are actually more than that. Sorry, I'm three point nine seven million. Um, you know, over sixty percent of all people playing football in this country are playing before high school, mm-hmm. right? And it's like a thirty percent or so are playing at the high school level, and that's just football, right? You're talking about all these other sports. Uh, if you, if, if the, the you know best estimates said say that there are a couple million concussions from sports every year in this country. 
And so if you're educating people, 30, 40,000 people at a time, that doesn't really address the problem. Um, and so that was where the, uh, the need for a uh, you know, more scalable solution came from. Which led to then crash course, because it's like a package that you, but that's part of the thing, right? Is at the end of the day, like one of the things that can have the biggest impact is like people talking with people. So if you can integrate them both yeah. with each other. And so uh, the Concussion Legacy Foundation actually launched a uh, initiative called Team Up Speak Up. And the idea here is perceived norms. So this idea that your, your teammates would report a concussion, that makes you more likely to report a concussion. Well, what Team Up Speak Up is, is it's a, basically a pledge that is said before a game uh, by a team in unison. They're basically all reading a statement, which basically says that I agree to look out for concussion symptoms in myself or my teammates. But something about the act of saying it as a community, the, the, the thought there is that that can help move the needle when it comes to uh, changing the perceived norms. Who's actually delivering these education programs? It's the coaches and the, the gym teachers in school? You know, the problem is that there's no standardization. You can have programs that have athletic trainers de delivering it. Those actually, based on some other research, tend to be the best uh, ways of delivering <laughs> concussion education. Uh, but uh, you can have many programs that don't even have athletic trainers, mm -hmm. particularly at the youth level. Mm -hmm. Parents have uh, a, a front row seat and know their kids better than anybody else. And they can often be the first to sense that there's something wrong and, and escalate their kid to get the care they need. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I mean, these concussion educations, they're not given to parents at all. Uh, and so that's part of what we're also learning is, is really important is that you need to, the parents need to be involved in the, the, the education too, because if they don't know what to be looking for, then they're not going to look for it. Were there people in your life that were like, something's not right with you, Esther? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I mean, it was my dad who was yeah. really the only one who noticed that I got hit on the field. I think one of my teammates said something, but you know, he was sort of the first person because the parents are the ones who are probably watching their kids specifically on the field the most. Um, but it was definitely my parents who identified it even sort of later that day, the next day, once I had sort of all the symptoms um, come on and certainly were also the ones to, to escalate things because um, I, don't, I don't know that I would have known to do that and been in the right state of mind to do that. And then do we know anything about which sports are more dangerous than others? The problem with, uh, with assigning risk to sports when it comes to concussion is that you don't want to discount the fact that your brain doesn't care what hits it. I've seen some horrible concussions that come from things like cheerleading um, where they're doing those incredibly technical tosses um, over very hard surfaces. I've also seen uh, you know, really bad concussions and things that you wouldn't necessarily consider uh, contact sports like swimming, uh, when people are doing those turns uh, at the edge of the pool. Uh, skiing, of course, you see really bad brain injuries in general that tend to not be as frequent with concussions. But I mean, you know, if I were to say the single sport that's the worst when it comes to concussion, it's got to be boxing, uh, right? Because the goal of that sport is to give someone a concussion, right? That's what knocking them out is. Mm -hmm. That's probably the worst, but fortunately we don't have, uh, for the last 70 years, we don't have that many 
middle schoolers doing it. But it used to be in middle schools. It used to be a normal thing. I'd have to go back and ask. My husband was a boxer in school, like grade school. So I'll have to ask when that started, whether it was high school or even earlier. But even a high schooler doing boxing is like a terrifying concept to me. I don't, but they're, they're pretty prevalent, right? High, high school boxing teams. Quick disclaimer that I don't know much about boxing, probably have no right nor reason to be judging school-aged boxing, and I wouldn't be surprised if the physical and mental health benefits of boxing outweighed the risks. But let's continue. One of my colleagues actually pulled a video of, uh, it's like from the 50s, and it is basically a bunch of like moms cheering on their middle school-aged boxing kids, and it looks barbaric, um, but you know, really, I think any of these activities that are putting you know, nine-year-olds at risk of concussion, I don't think that those are necessarily the best thing. Yeah. Esther, the other thing that I just did want to touch on, you talk somewhere about how cognitive behavioral therapy really helped you. Yeah. I did cognitive therapy after my second bad concussion, where I think I experienced a lot more memory problems and things like that than the first and with that second concussion I actually missed a whole year of school and so it was during that year that I was trying a lot of different things seeing what worked and cognitive therapy was one of them of just improving my memory executive functioning all of those skills that had just gotten a little bit hurt by the concussion and it definitely was one of the best treatments that I that I had and I think really made me a lot more comfortable and feel prepared to then go back to school um, and feel like I was a lot more back to my my old self in terms of my memory and, and just knowing that I could do the work in school. And I think those skills really translated and helped a lot with, with my memory and just sort of general work really since then. Was it because your memory got better and or I suppose like you learned how to like techniques to compensate or help get yourself through or there yeah it was both I mean part of it was you know I recovered a lot over over those months and and really that year but a lot of it was just figuring out how to make things work like I no longer had quite as sharp a memory as I did and it was about like you know preparing early for tests or things like that and um, you know learning vocab words, studying Spanish in school, like was always something that was really easy for me. And then suddenly that became a lot harder. And so figuring out other ways to, to study and just sort of the, the slow and steady was always sort of what I took of just preparing early. And like, frankly, that's a skill that I think helped a lot just throughout life and in college, even when I was no longer suffering as much as I was in high school, you know, and didn't have the kind of memory problems starting to study for exams earlier is just like a great thing to do and then you know what questions you have you have time to go see your professor in office hours so things like that that even when maybe I didn't need them to compensate for the memory issues that I had acutely post-concussion like were just great skills for life frankly and that I have have sort of carried it with me sounds helpful seems (laughs) seems like I need some kind of yeah (laughs) anything with sleep that you had impacts with after? Yeah, I, I remember having like disrupted sleep 
right after in a lot of ways. I mean, part of it was just like being in a lot of pain with headaches. Sometimes it's hard to go to sleep with a headache, just feeling so fatigued after um, my concussions, both of those bad ones, just like wanting to sleep a lot after them. I don't know what the research is about this, but like after my concussion in 2013, I stopped remembering dreams for like many years. Like I only very recently started to ever remember them. I know there's been some different like ideas about that or, or some research, but I've always thought that was kind of interesting because I, I used to always remember my dreams growing up and that was like very quickly stopped. So you got I don't anything know for that, us yeah, on that, Dan? Was, <laughs> well, part of what the areas of the brain that are responsible for encoding memory, so basically translating something from working memory to you know, more long-term memory, something that you might remember longer, are the same regions of the brain that are like, structurally where you'd expect the, the brain to be most impacted with a hit near bone or near other structures. And so it's not surprising that there might be some uh, changes in memory encoding that could translate into problems with remembering dreams. Uh, but I don't know of any any uh, you know, specific research about it. Do you ever watch the movie um, Inside Out? No? Neither one of you? Oh, that's like homework. It's like my favorite. <laughs> it's one of my, I think I saw it like three times in the theaters and for an adult to watch a Pixar movie three times in theaters is somewhat embarrassing, but it, I mean, my background is in cognitive science, so they just do a really nice job of sort of depicting what it's like to create memories and to like manage your different emotions and how important it is to have sort of like a whole brain. So highly recommend Inside Out. So uh, after you had your concussions, one of the things you talk about is having like a huge part of your identity being associated with sports. And Mm -hmm. you talk about, I had to totally reinvent myself and find other things. Yeah, it was a mix of both like viewing myself as an athlete, caring about sports, but also just how much the team aspect meant to me and just how many friends I had. Because, you know, I played at school, but I also played on a club team. I played on a town team. And so I just had a lot of friends who I really only interacted with through sports and so that was a big loss even relationships with with coaches but it's also just something that I spent a lot of time doing and so figuring out what else was I going to do for for extracurriculars if I wasn't playing soccer I wasn't playing hockey and you know that became a bunch of different things in high school and you know certainly things that are, are more applicable now I guess than than playing soccer might be but I I started playing golf in high school. I'm still not very good, but good lifelong sport is what my doctor told me. Probably really good in finance too. Yeah, yeah, I should be a lot better at golf. I think for for now we're we're working on that. Or even just you know playing playing more tennis, which is something that you know I enjoy doing. I played with my dad this Saturday. I started what else in high school. I started writing for the school newspaper, which probably wouldn't have had time to do if I was if I was playing three seasons of sports. And then really the big one was getting involved on the advocacy side around around concussion um, and doing work with Boston Children's Hospital, with the Concussion Legacy Foundation, sort of a, a series of of things there, just trying to, to help other people feel like they weren't alone and, and that other people had gone through something similar. So that really became a huge, a huge focus of mine in high school and and beyond because it just felt like all the things that I didn't know and and my family didn't know hopefully we could 
pass some of those on so other people could could maybe do it do it a little bit better than than we had and not have to learn the hard way on on so many of those things one of the articles looks at outcomes after one month do we have any evidence about these education programs and their longer longer term outcomes yeah uh, there are some studies looking at uh, the programs up to a year out including uh, a, a study that I'm um, writing up now but you, I think you, you bring up an important point that you know it's hard to, no one's really looking at these things in the long term and part part of that is because the decision to report a concussion is so multifactorial so you don't know whether someone's decision to either report or not report is based on the education they received or based on a whole bunch of other factors. The state of North Carolina has uh, implemented the crash course program by mandate across the state. Mm -hmm. And as part of that program, the North Carolina High School Athletic Association has worked uh, with us on a research study to see what does that look like. And so uh, it's actually the you know, likely to be the largest study of concussion education ever uh, because um, we've had at this point uh, over 40,000 respondents uh, over three years. Um, and so uh, we're basically going to get a, a really good sense of, of you know, what concussion education looks like now in terms of efficacy and what we can do to improve it. Yeah. I feel like as humans, we're great at implementing programs, but not always about like <laughs> deciding whether they actually work or are good <laughs> or have any good impact. Well, it's a whole lot uh, uh, more straightforward just to implement it and the actual tracking. And, I mean, forget about programs, right? That's like the entire outcome center yeah. <laughs> is, uh, you know, I have a patient in front of me. I treated them and, you know, some get a lot better and some get a little better. How much of it has to do with what I did? Like. Tracking that is uh, is a lot harder than just <laughs> treating that patient and the next patient. It's, it takes so much time <laughs> and effort. But but that, that that's where we learn. I mean, so for example, uh, you know, ten years ago, the idea if you had a concussion uh, was to rest completely. You know, you'd wait until you're completely asymptomatic. If you wouldn't do anything before then, then you'd slowly introduce activities. Um, and if any symptoms came back, well, you went back to the earlier step. And so you'd slowly build up to returning to sport. And what we realize now is that that was a standard practice and, you know, no one was really studying it that closely. I'm not going to lie. That's kind of what I would have thought today's treatment was. <laughs> well, what we re realize now is, okay, so if I, if my headache gets a little worse because I'm exercising, that's not causing damage to my brain tissue. So there's no problem with that. And in fact, to the extent we understand that concussions are problems of uh, metabolic mismatch, and so ability, uh, inability of the brain to clear toxic neurometabolites uh, and get nutrients where they need to be, increasing your heart rate would actually help with that. And so now when we actually, when they've done the studies, they found that people who have participation activities that increase their heart rate without putting them at risk for subsequent head impact, they they do better. Again, tracking these outcomes, it's so important. Yeah, I was I was part of the, the dark room crowd, the very slow return to stuff. And 
Yeah. I think also it's like, it's very isolating to do that because you're just at home, you're out of school, you're not really seeing anybody because you're resting all the time. And so I'm sure there's, you know, benefits to sort of the social and sort of continuous learning aspects as well, probably, that you don't get if you're completely shut down. And and the other part of it is if you're not doing anything else, you have nothing to do but perseverate on your symptoms. And so if you were hanging out with your friends, you might not notice that you have a bit of a headache. But if you're sitting in a room and you're not allowed to look at your phone, you're not allowed to look at the TV, you're not allowed to look at the computer, you're just sitting, you got nothing to do but think about how much your head hurts. And, and so that, I mean, that, that's what the science actually says now. Good to know. With a potential conflict of interest disclosure that Dr. Danishvar helped create and is a director for the program, I do want to emphasize that anyone can go to the Crash Course website, linked in our episode resources, and download their concussion education toolkits, of which there are many, so you can find the program that works for you and your needs. Big thank you to Esther and Dan for sharing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please know that liking, subscribing, and sharing is essential to sustaining our work. We release episodes the first Monday of each month, or try to, so stay tuned for more stories. The Finding Strength production is a collaboration between the Rehabilitation Outcome Center at Spalding and our model systems. The Spalding Harvard Traumatic Brain Injury Model System, the Boston Harvard Burn Injury Model System, and the Spalding New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Model System Center, all funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. The material presented here is for general informational purposes only. Dan, you played some sports. I, uh, I wrestled in, um, in high school and college, and I played football in high school. I wasn't very good at football, but we won the state championship, but not because of me. Um, uh, so I, I actually didn't know that I'd had concussions until I started doing research in concussion. And now you can like look back and say, oh, that was definitely a concussion. Oh, yeah. I, I've definitely had concussions. Uh, and th- there are a few specific ones that really stand out. And I was fortunate enough to not have any significant problems associated with them uh, that I can tell at this point. It's just, you know, how much the science is, or how much our understanding of concussion has changed in the 20 years since I was um, participating in those, those activities. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. So now I'll be able to look at my husband differently and like blame things on the boxing when he was when he was in high school. Of course, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> uh, you, you have my uh, my express professional opinion. Professional opinion, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>